welcome to episode 16 of the Alec Hogg Show, a long-form audio biography where we delve into the lives of inspirational South Africans. And in this episode, we explore how lessons from the ultimate meritocracy can be applied elsewhere in our lives, especially in business. Brad Barrett was vice-captain of his hometown rugby team, the Sharks, and just 21 years old when among the 2008 Curry Cup winning team. The day after that triumph, he relocated to the UK for what was to become a 12-year-long love affair with trailblazing North London rugby club Saracens. He played a key part in helping the club rewrite the rugby record books. Barrett was one of numerous South Africans involved in what was to become Europe's most successful club of the past decade, becoming only the second person to, as captain, lift three European Championship trophies. He also led Saracens to five English Premiership titles. Along the way, Barrett was selected for England and the British and Ireland Lions, playing a key role in a number of famous victories, including wins over the All Blacks and the Springboks. In this episode, Saracen's Captain Fantastic shares his insights about leadership from a long career in the rarefied atmosphere of world-class sport. He hung up his boots last year and five months ago relocated his young family to Cape Town, where Barrett now exercises rapidly developing entrepreneurial talents, directing his already famous coffee company and a fast-growing fintech. We begin his story, as always, at the beginning. You're from Durban, went to Kersney College. Is that where you got your love for rugby? Yeah, I would say rugby has very much been a part of my life ever since I can remember. Both my dad, both grandfathers, grandfather's parents also played so I think it's been a the staple sport of the family I do vividly recall a a memory when I was about five years old I used to play soccer at the local club and suddenly one day my dad took a different turn I said you know you you missed the turn he said "No, no no today we're going somewhere else and inevitably that was to the local rugby club which was Glenwood Old Boys and the, the rest is history really From there, um, I think the love of rugby was probably also harnessed at Durban Prep, my sort of primary school in Durban, which has a a rich history of of rugby players. Ironically enough, when we returned to South Africa in 2009 with Saracens, I had both Alistair Hargreaves and Matt Stevens with me on the trip. So there were uh, three Durban Prep boys in Durban representing Saracens at that point, which was was quite cool. And then, yeah, the, the love of rugby grew I played in the primary school Craven Week for two years, joined Kersney, and rugby again was almost a religion in high schools in South Africa. So it became a huge driving force for me and something I was incredibly passionate about. How did you slip through the South African net? You did represent South Africa under 21. In fact, played in the final against France where South Africa lost that. And you were doing amazing things playing for the Sharks at a very young age, still in your early 20s. And you then went off to the UK where your career continued. But you would have thought nowadays with the Scouts trying to pull kids out of primary schools even uh, to get them into the system, that there would have been someone knocking on your door, certainly, and not letting you leave the country at that point. Yeah, I wouldn't say I slipped through the net rather chose a different pathway. Um, I foresee a bigger opportunity. I played South African schools. I played South Africa under 21. Had three fantastic years of the Sharks. I even went on an emerging Springboks tour in 2007 with a few guys who were to become teammates of mine at Saracens. Ernst Chabert, Skulk Brits were on that trip too. My last year at school, I was approached by Bath Rugby to sort of join the club to become a part of the university. I spent time with the England under-19 team. So it was always on my radar. Having spent quite a bit of time in the UK growing up, my mom's parents are both English. We had a 
rich sort of English heritage running through half the side of my family. And at that point, I just saw a unique um, opportunity to see the world being in sort of the centerpiece of the world in London. I was hugely ambitious with my tertiary education. So I'd done an undergraduate in South Africa. I saw this opportunity to be able to study and play professional rugby at the same time. So in 2009, at the same time I joined Saracens, I signed up to a, a master's in science for uh, business management. And that was done in conjunction at Hartford University as well as playing at Saracens. So I wouldn't say it was from a perspective of um, South Africa, you know, turning their eye away from me or, or vice versa. I think for me it was the bigger picture in that beyond my rugby career, I've got another 40, 50 hopefully years to live and I want to be as best prepared for life after rugby. Global South African. Well, I think in many ways you utilize the, the opportunities that life gives you at that stage. I thought if I was a, a young rugby player at the time, I, I had a girlfriend, but I, I wasn't married. I didn't have kids. I think these sort of things only complicate your career the later on into your career. So I thought that time I was 21 I'd had a good grounding in, in rugby in South Africa, had played in a super rugby final with the Sharks, uh, had won the Curry Cup the, the day before I left. I just saw it as a, as a great opportunity to, to go see the world, learn a different style of rugby. I thought it would make me a better rugby player in turn, uh, which it did. Again, an opportunity to see the world. A business science degree, your master's, uh, there's not many rugby players certainly from the public perception, who go on to do that kind of thing. So I guess right from the early stages, you did look at life somewhat differently. Yeah, I was quite lucky in many ways. Maybe in the early days, I, I probably got a little bit frustrated and angry with it, with my parents constantly drumming me with the, the education bit. But looking back, it's something I'm quite proud of. Because, you know, I think there's so many other distractions when you're playing professional rugby. The, the brutal reality is... You can only train very hard for a few hours of the day. The rest of the day is very much at your own disposal. And I think in those early years, um, a lot of players probably take advantage of it. You know, there's always golf to play. There's always lunches. There's always a million things to do, especially in Durban. You can go to the beach um, after training. So, you know, just staying a little bit diligent with it. And, you know, I, I chipped away at it. I think the, the degree that probably take you three years ended up taking me five years. But it was just about, you know, keeping some momentum and just plugging away. So eventually when I, I got the MSc from Hartford University in 2014, I think it was, it was a very happy day. Your dad, Bruce, is a director of CMH, a listed company on the JSE. Uh, so he might have had an influence in that as well, given that uh, he, he does operate at the top end of the business community. Yeah, my dad's been a, a fantastic mentor and sort of role model for me. You know, similarly back then when he was playing rugby, the art of a professional rugby player wasn't possible. So I think at a very sort of early age, he also had to make the decision of following a, a commercial route or, you know, sticking to the rugby. And I think it must have been tough at, at some points, um, you know, looking back on maybe missed opportunities. But fundamentally, he put himself in a fantastic position. And through hard work and dedication, he, he got himself to where he is today. And he's got the admiration and love and respect of his whole family. Brad, you then go off to England and join Saracens. Now, there is a strong South African connection there. Uh, Johan Rupert at one point was a, a significant shareholder and there are a sprinkling of South African players in the team uh, continuously. You also seem to arrive at the time when Saracens was just beginning to find its footing into what's been quite a spectacular past decade. Yeah, ironically, I was probably six months just before that transition. I actually signed at a time Eddie Jones was the head coach. He recruited me. It was a little bit of an unstable period. I think he was to depart the club three months later from, from my arrival. Brendan Fenter had been one of the technical special coaches uh, who was sort of recruited as a consultant. And a guy called Richard Graham was our assistant coach who took over for the latter part of the season. Um, we started to come good probably with the last six, seven games of the season. It was too late to get us into any sort of playoff. 
But uh, what Latter developed was Brendan Fenty taking over and not just from a rugby perspective, but a, a huge culture evolution and change at Saracens, which, you know, was the bedrock and foundation for the, the years of success that we had. What's happened to Brendan? Brendan's still heavily involved in rugby. He's done various consulting roles throughout the UK. He was involved at London Irish for a point. He's been in Italy, had the stint with Springboks. Obviously, Brendan's a, a qualified GP and has a big practice out in Somerset West, but he's uh, most recently taken up a stint with the Sharks in Durban. You probably looked up to Brendan Fenter when, when you were a youngster coming through because he also played a similar position. Yeah, of course. I mean, Brendan was a, a huge part of that 95 World Cup winning team. Obviously, Francois Pinar um, having a huge involvement at Saracens. I think he was probably the reason why Saracens first came on my radar. I do remember my dad going for business into the UK when I was maybe nine or ten. And I remember him returning with the Saracens jersey because Francois Pinar had just joined Saracens post the 95 World Cup. So it was a jersey I remember wearing at uh, one of my Kersney practices. So uh, ironically enough, it, it was a jersey I was to probably spend 260-odd games and uh, some 10 years later. How many of those games were you captain for? I was captain between 2015 and 2020. So I would say roughly half. And that position, to become captain of an outstanding club like that in the UK... What kind of additional responsibilities does it bring? I think it was quite good for me in terms of the timing of it. Um, I felt I was very well prepared. I'd been part of the senior leadership team at Saracens for three, four years. Um, I'd been in a sort of senior leadership role with England the, the three or four years preceding that. So at the time, I thought you know, I was, I was well equipped to deal with what it would throw at me. Again, I think the best thing I've learned from, from leadership is that you need to be the most credible version of yourself. If you're going to lead and inspire people, they need to believe in what you say. They need to think that you are a credible leader and something that when you say something to them, they believe in what you want them to achieve. So for me, I'd, I'd learned from some great leaders. I'd been captained by John Smith at the Sharks, by Steve Borthwick in my early years at Saracens. And you pick up um, a few traits along the way that assist your, your development. But I think when your, your turn eventually sort of arrives, you need to find something that's unique to you and what people sort of can, um, can grasp at and find a tangible thing that they can hold on to. You're listening to The Alec Hogg Show from Biz News. You've mentioned Saracens a, a number of times, and, and you were the captain of that club when three of the five years that you were the captain, you were the champions not just of, of England, but also of Europe. That's an extraordinary achievement. I'm reading through the various clippings, it says only one other person had that achievement of captaining a European champion three times. When you arrived there, Brad, did you set yourself these goals? Are you a goal-setting kind of person? If I'm honest, I didn't. I initially set the goal of coming over for two, three years to better myself as a rugby player. So I had that internal drive to become a, a more rounded player that understands different conditions, understands different decision-making abilities on a rugby pitch. Again, to pursue the, the academic side. But, you know, in turn, I think with each year and with each milestone, you only become more hungry. And I think the most thing I'm most proud about in Saracens has been the journey. I look back to 2008. I think we ended up eighth in the premiership. We were to win our first uh, premiership title in 2010. So it was a three-year journey. And similarly with Europe, in 2009, we didn't even qualify for Europe. So we had to wait till 2010. In 2011, we eventually reached a, a knockout stage. We knocked out in the quarterfinal. In 2012, we reached the semi-final, and fortunately, we locked out. And then probably the, the biggest, it's called a thunderbolt I received at Saracens, was in 2013. We made both the Champions Cup, which is the, the final of Europe, and the Premiership final. And looking back now, it was probably two of the most devastating losses. We, we lost in Cardiff against Toulon, and the following week, we had to play the Premiership final against Northampton. 
we led the whole game. I think they, they evened the score in the 80th minute and ended up winning the game in the 120th minute of extra time. So I think moments like that can either make or break an organization, but I, I can look back on it really proudly as I feel that was the, the real true mark of what that Saracens team was about, the character, the resilience, the, the culture. We had this analogy of pounding the rock, and it was a, an old quote about the stonecutter who you know, would, would pound a rock near on 999 times without seeing even a scratch. But on the thousand strike, the stone would split into two. And we carry that throughout the whole season. It's that the little things that you do day by day aren't always visible to everyone. But eventually, um, with persistence and with attitude and with uh, determination, you'll get to the end goal. And eventually, to, to win the double in 2015, um, we beat Russing Metro in Lyon. And two weeks later, to beat Exeter in the Premiership final, I think that was just a, a huge relief moment, but a moment of sheer exhilaration for everyone who'd been involved in that journey. We knew in, in 2011, we weren't the finished article. There was elements of our game that were lacking. We had to become more physical. Our attacking shape had to develop. We had to have a more rounded all-court game to be able to impose ourselves on defense, but also be able to be clinical when we got our opportunity in attack. So I think at the, at the heart of it, there was this determination and drive. Uh, a group of people were hugely motivated to do something special. But on the flip side, we also had an environment that was conducive to learning, but also fun. So there was no sense of people being downbeat to come to training. Most people arrived excited. They arrived engaged. Our staff and coaches did a phenomenal job in keeping the, the atmosphere relaxed, but also highly entertaining and engaging. And I think that brought the best out in the people and brought the best out in the players. And when we went on the pitch, we felt we were the most prepared team in the league. How did they do that? Because again, from a business perspective, engaged staff is the difference between a, a normal company and a good company or even a great company. Now, when you're playing at the very top end of rugby, you can't have any of your team members being disengaged. So how do you make sure that they're completely focused? It's sometimes the small things that count. I think maybe a lot of organizations think that a small gesture here or there is not necessarily going to change anything, but it's the sum value of all these little things that create a special culture. Our first CEO, uh, when Brendan Fenter took over, Edward Griffiths was also a huge driving force behind this. And he had this mantra is that if the organization treats you well, you in turn will try a little bit harder. And again, it's a little bit cheesy to say, but you know, the club went at length to try and make players feel most at home. Everything from trying their best to look after the wives, many who have flown from abroad, helped them get settled. There was a crash for the young kids at the, at the training ground. Um, there were small little things that made you feel part of a family and in turn made you really happy. And if, if, you're ha if your life outside of your occupation is happy, it allows you to focus so much better on the job at hand. What about focusing on helping these athletes like yourself to have a life after their rugby careers are over? Yeah, that's the one in particular. I think many rugby players in bygone years, it would have been frowned upon or seen to be doing anything that would be distracting you from your occupation or your job. And, you know, Edward Griffiths, Brendan Fenter saw it completely differently. Brendan had this uh, discussion with us. I think he worked out that during your working week, uh, he wanted total focus, total dedication for a mere 8%. And let's say that was probably, what, three hours a day, uh, whether that was the two hours on the training pitch and the other hour in the gym or, or doing uh, a rugby sort of activity. He said, for the other part, I want you to enjoy it. I want you to utilize it to upskill yourself, whether you are studying, whether you're taking on any uh, entrepreneurial sort of spirit, whether you want to do some work experience, we as a club are going to encourage you to prepare yourself after rugby. So I think in turn, it, it took the pressure away. It's only probably in the last two to three years of, of a rugby player's life where this anxiety about the next step really creeps in. But if you can encourage guys to be forward thinking and be proactive in their life beyond rugby, 
it's going to set themselves up uh, like no other club could. So Saracens, I think, were t- completely groundbreaking in this sphere. And encouragingly, I think all the other clubs have responded and have adopted a similar approach. It's quite an organization that you were part of. Did you read a lot to try and implement leadership ideas from elsewhere, given that that you were the leader when uh, that whole enterprise uh, took to where it really mattered, which was on the field? Yeah, I think, you know, from the organization side, there were uh, trailblazers in many ways. Um, Again, professional rugby is not very old. You know, it only started in 96 and things were adopted at a certain stage and had probably hit a, a sort of roadmap of, you know, we are going down a route of becoming more and more professional. But from a training perspective, that's great. How are we keeping players stimulated mentally and off the pitch? Knowing that, you know, rugby players are going to retire around 32, 35, yeah, 38 if, they, if they're very lucky. But they've got another... 50 years to live, you know, how are we going to um, prepare these guys for life after rugby? And, you know, I think in terms of the, the development side, you know, I always leaned a lot on the players around me. I always feel a leader's as good as the players and the, the leaders he has on the pitch. Rugby is such a multi-diverse sport that at any given time, you need a leader in every, of every capacity. You know, I'd be lying to you if I, if I said I'd know what's going on in the scrum every other day, all the line out, and in, in many ways in terms of the kicking battle. The other players on the pitch who have a fundamental role to lead the team in a certain capacity. So for me, there was no ego. I was happy to step aside when I thought there was someone who knew something that I didn't. And for me, I, I took great encouragement of empowering the people around me. And when people want to be empowered, ultimately they take responsibility for what they do. So I was always very lucky that I had a group of five to six leaders on the pitch behind me who I could lean on at any stage. You're listening to The Alec Hogg Show from Biz News. You mentioned ego. When you walked out anywhere in England, the height of your career, I'm sure you were mobbed by people wanting autographs and telling you how wonderful you were. How did you keep that under control, the ego side? Well, you know, I think you learn with, with rugby, there's, there's ebbs and flows, there's ups and downs, and you're only as good as your last game in people's eyes. And despite everything that may have gone well 10 years before, it can be forgotten in a week and you can be a hero the next week. So keeping a, a level footing, I came from quite a grounded background. I had an older brother who always kept me in place. I've always had a very strong friendship group from, from school. We've got a group of 15, 20 guys who are still best friends to the day. And I think we all wouldn't allow someone to put their head above the parapet. So you stay grounded by the, the people you, you keep close to you and people who are honest with you and give you exactly what you need. But, you know, I, I think with sports, you, you have to enjoy and appreciate the good times, but also be aware that in the blink of an eye it can be taken away from you. But dark life, generally. Very much so, and probably in a more finite and more squeezed amount of time. I say there's only seven days between most games, six some days, that you you always have to refocus yourself. So you very rarely get a huge opportunity to enjoy yourself and and pump yourself on the chest and and, and go on a spree. It's very much always about the next task. And that's probably what a a lot of rugby players struggle with post-rugby, is that you don't have the conclusion to every week uh, in a corporate life or a working life you don't have this preparation this build up a conclusion either a really happy celebratory moment or a refocusing Uh, you have to sort of be able to dip in and out of these moments but be more measured in your um, approach to how you're working those friends of yours from school um, presumably lots of them are still living in South Africa how did they feel when your very first game, going back home for England this was, to take on the Springboks at your old stamping ground at Kings Park? And how did you feel about the way they were feeling? Because I guess divided loyalties. Yeah, it was a, a bizarre period. 
It was my first summer tour. I'd been on the England tour to Australia the year before. I played in a non-capit game against the Maoris. I'd had the Six Nations. England had done really well. Uh, we were very close to a Grand Slam um, in the first Six Nations. And we came over to South Africa with, with high hopes against a, you know, a very strong South African team at that point. Coming to Durban, it was a bizarre feeling. I'd never stayed in a hotel in Durban in my life, so weirdly that found really strange. I remember going to Kings Park for the captain's run and completely sort of going into a, a different moment. I, I turned left to the home change room and it, it took one of the sort of uh, baggage masters to say, oh, no, no, you guys are that side. I, I, I never even ventured that side. So the whole experience was truly bizarre. And again, I'm sure there was mixed feelings amongst a lot of my friends and family too. But sadly, the day was was cut short um, early on in the first half. I caught a stray finger to the eye and was rushed to hospital. So I missed the bulk of that game and, and sadly missed the second test. I had a, a lacerated eyeball and had a repair to the sort of white part of my eye and uh, was lucky enough to return to the squad, and I, I ended up sitting on the bench for the third test. So sadly, the tour doesn't go by with as fond memories, but the whole experience, I think, was, was quite bizarre. How many times did you play for England against South Africa? Um, four, I believe. And you scored a try, I scored but then a, in a losing effort, uh, I think, yeah, in that game, was it? I scored a try at Twickenham. I think it was the last time I played South Africa. Might have been in 2014, I believe. And again, do you go onto the field as a professional uh, or do you go on the field as an Englishman or as someone being a little heart sore that uh, these are people that you grew up with? I was extremely proud. Um, you know, I, I think at that point I had decided that my, my rugby playing career was going to be continued and finished in the UK. I'd spent a bit of time um, in that first year sort of finding my feet. I, I, the start of the 2009 season, I started really well. I came on England's radar. They sat me down. I sort of made the decision that I'm going to commit to this life in England. I wanted to play for England. My grandfather had represented England universities and England under-21s, and it was probably perceived a little bit more different back home. But at the time, I thought I just wanted to commit to something and playing for England for me was, was never second best. It was something I was very excited and I was very proud to do. You say back home. Are you back home in South Africa? I'm back home now, yeah. I'm, in, I'm based in Cape Town. I'm uh, working both on my coffee brand, Tiki Tonga Coffee, which is a UK brand that's set up shop here in South Africa. But I also... Um, running a UK fintech business called Pollinate International, which has huge aspirations here in Africa, but also in the Middle East. Just starting with a coffee, how did you get into that? Again, it was probably at the time where I had just finished my master's degree. I was sort of umming and ahhing between doing either some work experience uh, and then two good friends of mine had started a, a craft beer label in the UK and I'd just seen how their personalities had thrived and enjoyed it. And I just thought to myself, you know, what better, what better sort of experience than learning all capacities of the business by starting your own small business. And in 2016, I had a good conversation with a friend who had met through Saracen Circles who was in the industry. He was primarily on the machinery side, but had a good understanding of the, the coffee industry, having been involved for 30 odd years. And we'd seen sort of uh, coffee always pitched as this uh, shortage, which is a you know suburb in, in the UK, a real hipster sort of product. Yet it was so mainstream and was so commonly consumed, both on the performance of sport level, but also as a social a means of interacting. So Tiki Tonga was the victory song sung at Saracens, and it was something that connected me to my roots. It's now, you know, sung across various sporting clubs across the UK, initially from Tonga brought over to New Zealand and then brought to Saracens by a player who'd spent loan, uh, a loan deal there. 
something that represented uh, joy and passion and all the unique bits about sport are that they bring people together and I think coffee is also one of those things that is a great driver for for human connections and that's what we set out to do is bring people together and inspired by sport. And how's it doing? Doing fantastically well we've had some awesome milestones Um, in the last couple years we've partnered with Guinness so we are the exclusive roasters of uh, Guinness 232 coffee. We have a, a partnership with Tottenham Hotspurs. So we supply both the training ground, the whole stadium. We have a partnership at Saracens with the Tour of Britain cycling event as their title sponsor following the course uh, for the seven, eight days of the event. We've done various uh, sporting, uh, health and wellness sort of activities. We do Tough Mudders. Um, and that's very much the, the arm of the business that's about marketing and promotion. But fundamentally in the UK, we're a B2B supplier. So we supplied many law firms, banks. We supplied insurance, insurance businesses. Uh, we do restaurants, cafes, bars, uh, sporting clubs across the country. And then we also have our own B2C arm from our own website via Ocado in the UK. And of course, the, the beast that is Amazon. Most recently, we've launched in the U.S. and it started really well. Uh, we're speaking to various sort of channels and retailers there, but we are also available on uh, Amazon USA. And in South Africa, we have um, two coffee shops. We have one both in Durban and Amschlange, as well as a coffee shop in Melrose Arch in your hometown. Now I'm in the, in the process now of trying to find a site for us here in Cape Town. You're listening to The Alec Hogg Show from Biz News. That's quite a story, Brad. Did you have other friends of yours who were full-time in the business when you were busy also having a professional rugby career? Yeah, so my my partner was sort of full-time. Whilst he still had his machinery business, we had staff sort of dedicated this to this sort of 24-7 in the office, in the roastery. We had people on the ground as sales staff. But it's been a fantastic sort of learning curve for me. I ended up spending probably three to four hours a day on it in my last two to three years of rugby. I think with every small milestone, you only become more encouraged and you you become more ambitious. And having had these partnerships, it's given us a great sort of footing into the sporting and health conscious sort of um, aspect of of society. Because coffee is is a great motivator for exercise. It connects people like no other sort of product can do. It's a great motivator for mental health. We've partnered with the Matt Hampson Foundation, of which I've also become an ambassador. So Tiki Tonga supports the foundation. Yeah, it's it's been a great way of exploring the, the corporate and business world. You mentioned Matt Hampson. That's, again, a story that many South Africans won't know. Here was a young guy. I think he was still 20, a prop playing for his age group for England. And in a practice, he had a spinal injury, which pretty much paralyzed him. But the way that the rugby community has has rallied around uh, Matt is, has been quite extraordinary. D- how did you get involved in that story? Yeah, Matt's uh, honestly one of the most inspiring guys I've, I've ever met and had the, the privilege to actually chat to. Um, as you say, he had the, the world at his feet. He was in the, the Leicester first team squad, was playing for England under-21s, and, and at the blink of an eye, he has all normality taken away from him. You know, Matt's paralyzed from the neck down. He also has to have uh, assistance with his breathing. Yet the guy couldn't be more optimistic, upbeat, inspirational. He has the mantra of get busy living. So he's not going to let anything sort of get in his way. And 
I think what he's done for injured sports people in the UK has been phenomenal. They have their own rehab facility up in Leicestershire. They've got a community hub where any sort of person can apply to go spend some time at. I believe they have a hotel now where people can come do some of their rehabilitation there, speak to like-minded people who've been through a similar story. And I think it's it's as much physical as it is mental, knowing that they're not the only people there and they have a community to lean on has been a, a absolute privilege of mine to to be involved as an ambassador and more importantly to have Tiki Tonga involved and the Matt Hampson Foundation being our, 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 cha- our charity sponsor. How important is it in your experience, leaving rugby aside for a moment, but in the, in the business world, to be optimistic as part of a, a weapon for entrepreneurship? I think so. You, you have to look at things as a glass is half full. I think there's going to be challenges along the way. And, you know, I, I've probably already experienced some in, in my short time out of rugby. But again, I, I've tried to immerse myself in, in both worlds as much as I could, both on the fintech space as well as the coffee space. But don't be scared to learn new things and don't be scared to not know what you don't know. So whilst you might not understand all the lingo from day one, make it your mission to upskill yourself as much as you can. By the next call that you have, you'll be that much more prepared. So it's been a great learning curve for me so far. I still am nowhere near the finished article, and I don't think anyone is. And that's probably the the bit that you can reflect on, whether it's rugby or life or business. I don't think you ever should stop learning and evolving because the world changes, and we've seen during COVID in the blink of an eye, all normality has changed, and and so has the working environment. So I think having a, a positive outlook and a mantra that you as a person can only get better and, and more wiser is something that, you know, can really fuel you. As long as you keep an open mind and a high degree of humility, because we do realize there's a heck of a lot we don't know that we don't know. 100%. And uh, I said, having been privy to a few of the tech architecture chats at, at Pollinate, it's blown my mind in many capacities, but I, I feel a better person for having a complete respect for what these coders do day to day because it's it's a different language to I've ever heard before. What drew you in there to that fintech company, Pollinate, as you mentioned? It was probably through um, a bit of interest in the industry. Uh, I'd spent, in conjunction with my time um, with Tiki Tonga, I'd also done an associate role with a private equity firm who'd also ventured into the fintech space so it's something I had a keen interest on and understanding of. But again, I, I, I met a great guy, the founder, um, Alistair Lukies, who is known as a, a fintech pioneer in, in the UK. He founded a company called Monetize about 15, 20 years ago. We, we met and we caught up and I think the stars were aligned. And sometimes you, you have these moments where um, opportunity sort of meets your luck at the time. And I had sort of roughly outlined that I was looking to move back to South Africa. And that was at the same time Pollinate was looking to spread its wings into Africa, as well as North America and Asia and to become a truly global business. So sometimes it's it's not necessarily how you plan, but um, you have to take these amazing opportunities with both hands. You're listening to The Alec Hogg Show from BizNews. Coming back to South Africa, that's yeah. very much swimming against the tide nowadays where it seems every second person who has the means would rather be living somewhere else in the world. What motivated your decision? You know what it is? I think uh, for many people, they always perceive the grass to be greener on the other side. You know, However, you know, I've lived in the UK for five years with kids. Having now been back for five months, you, you still really – um, have to be so appreciative to, for all the incredible things we have in South Africa. You know, not just the people, uh, the friendly, the warmness, the outgoing nature of, of most South Africans, but the climate, amazing food and culture and things to do in this country is, is truly unsurpassed by any country I've been to. So to, to have the opportunity to bring my two young boys up in South Africa I think my, my son's now doing more extramurals in a week than he used to do in the UK in a year. So getting them to, to live 
the lifestyle I was afforded as a young boy has been a, a dream come true for my wife and I, and we've uh, we haven't looked back since. Your wife is she from this country? Yes, uh, we we met in Durban. We started dating before I went to the UK. She finished her English communications and media degree and joined me later on about 18 months after I left for the UK. And then our two sons, uh, Leo and Noah, were born in London in 2015. And our second was born in the the heat of lockdown in April last year. I've got a question on that because I often uh, attended the Berkshire Hathaway AGM in Omaha where Charlie Munger, who's one of the smartest guys on earth, was asked a question at one of those. The shareholders get to ask him and Warren Buffett questions. And the question he was asked that I recall so well was, how do you get a good wife? And he said, deserve her. You had an interesting career. You've played all over the world in uh, in rugby. It must be an incredibly demanding occupation, and you can get injured, and there's all kinds of other challenges that come into it. So how did you deserve your wife? Georgia, is that her name? Georgia, yeah. I mean, you know, I, I can't thank my wife enough, and she'll probably get more embarrassed about me talking about her than anyone. But I think back to all the sacrifices she's had to make along the way to allow me to reach for the stars and achieve my dreams and and do all the things that, you know, have helped me. Uh, But behind that has been this rock of support and, and someone that's never held me back in any capacity. From the decision to go over to the UK, you know, she she pretty much brought up our oldest son for seven months while I was away for the Rugby World Cup with England, whether it be on rugby camps. She did that all on her own in London without any family or support. So I can't speak enough about her character and, you know, what she's done for my life. But, you know, more in turn, she's become an incredible mom to both our boys. And for that, I'm eternally grateful. But how do you deserve her? That's a good question, Alec. I don't really know the answer to that. <laughs> I feel like you've got an analogy for me. What is that? I, I haven't really. I, I just, I, I just think that it's um, pretty much what Charlie said uh, is is something that just sticks in my mind, and that quite often there is uh, one member of the partnership who's acknowledged and and well received and famous, if you like, whereas. Were it not for the other member of the partnership, pretty much none of that would have happened. And you, you see this through the business community. Steve Jobs is a great example. He only really started coming right after he married Laureen, his second wife, and so on and, and, and so forth. But just, just getting back to your where it goes to from here, uh, you've got the fintech business that you're involved in and, and expanding it in South Africa. That must be really exciting. You've got the coffee business that you're doing the same thing. But there was an article in one of the UK papers, which may or may not have been fake news, which said that you'd love to play against the British and Irish Lions, who you actually have represented in the past when they come here to South Africa. But to do that, you'd have to get into a, a provincial team first. Any intention of coming out of retirement for that? Interesting question, Alec. I'm afraid I'm going to have to let you down on that capacity. I think at that time I was still debating that I mean that article might have been in must have been June 2020 so some time has passed since then I think at that point I was still looking to to find uh, something unique to do in my in my last year of rugby I debated going over to France spending some time in Japan and I sort of hadn't ruled out the the unique opportunity to possibly finish my career in South Africa uh, subsequently, obviously, a lot changed with COVID. I spent, you know, July to October playing in the heat of lockdown. Also, with this sort of empty feeling, I'd I'd had quite a privileged rugby career during a period where you'd had great crowds. With when I was at the Sharks, you know, between two thousand and six and two thousand and eight, I could always vividly remember Kings Park being sort of sold out, packed. Um, in my time in the UK, Saracen's following had grown exponentially. And then to suddenly arrive at a game where there's no one there. I remember playing a game on a Monday at midday because the game would be cancelled at a neutral venue. The whole thing just felt a bit soulless. So, 
the thought of having to do that again, uh, playing another season in those conditions, it, it really wasn't for me. And this opportunity at Pollinate opened up and I was very excited about doing something different to learning from a, a great group to immerse myself in the unique culture they have there. And sadly, I, I thought the, the rugby thing was no longer for me. We know that it's a religion in South Africa. Uh, that, that kids from uh, pre-teen ages might want to become the next Brad Barrett or a professional rugby player at some time in, in the future, and they, their whole lives could be dedicated on that. But only a few manage to get to a point where they can make a living out of it. What do you advise youngsters? And, and I'm not talking about the guys who are playing interprovincial or even for South African schools and so on, because they, they are on a fast track there, but – Younger than that, those who, who are wanting to follow in your footsteps in a way, I'm sure you get lots of them asking you questions along those lines. How do you answer them? Yeah, so it's a very interesting question. I think in hindsight, there's always periods of time in your life which you wish your older self could tell your younger self. Um, again, I, I look back to things that I think aided me, um, having balance, as a person, I think truly aided me. Um, there were probably times in my life where I came too obsessive about what I did in rugby. And in many ways, I think it holds, holds you back because when something becomes too important, I think anxiety grows and you start to try to do things that you've never done before and, and you lose focus. By having a bit of balance, still continue to, to see your friends, still continue to keep relationships up, also try to pursue something away from the game that can act as a sounding board to your rugby. In my latter years, I think, when rugby wasn't going so well, when you had a bad day, well, I had kids, which, which helped to unfocus very quickly, but also to have a business to, to look after your mind. That can be very therapeutic in many ways. So having this balance in life for me was, was very important, and I, I thought at the end I started to find a better symbiotic relationship between the two in that my rugby was aided by me having a way for my mind to explore beyond rugby. The minute I went home and started to dwell too much on what I'd done the day before or in the game before, I think you end up putting yourself in a, in a vicious circle. So for balance, I think is number one. Uh, the second reason would do it because you love it. I think there's many friends who I grew up with and many who actually were very successful and, and became professional rugby players, but it was never their passion, whether it had been a passion that was inspired by a parent or a coach or something like that. But fundamentally, they didn't love what they did. And I think in many capacities that, that held them back because when the going got tough, it was easy for them to sort of find a reason for them not to be there. And if you're going to go all the way, it's got to be your passion. In the good times and the bad times, there's going to be peaks and troughs all the way along the way. If it's something that you love, pursue it with everything that you have, uh, but don't do it for anyone else other than yourself. And then thirdly, I think, is, is probably the most important bit, is resilience and, and, and character for me is, is more important than the talent. There's so many guys I can think back to uh, between the ages of 16 and 19 that were absolute superstars. Um, and in many ways, I think you have to take all the small setbacks as something that's becoming part of your armory because with every sort of failure, with every fault along the way, you're building this inherent resilience in yourself. You know, I think that is something that you need to cherish and you need to respect is that along the way you're going to have these bumps but there are bumps that only make you stronger. And the higher and higher you get up, I think you're able to bounce back from small setbacks by having this resilience. So never let a closed door uh, stop you from what you're doing. If you don't make an under-18 team, it's not the end. If you don't make the under-19 team, it's not the end. If someone tells you, you know, you'll never play for a, for a union and you go to another one, don't let that stop you from you getting to where you want to go because – you know, rugby is such a subjective sport and on any given day, five different coaches could pick five different people for the same role and no one would be right or wrong. It's, it's very subjective. So, you know, 
appreciate, understand what makes you tick as a player. There's always this thing is sometimes with rugby, they try to look at the faults of what players uh, can and can't do. But uh, this was something Brendan was amazing at is he applauded and praised the things that players could do. And in turn, it, it inspired those players to start to work on the things they weren't so good at just by taking on their own on their own back as opposed to a coach drumming into you, you don't do this, you don't do this. I think praising the good in people ultimately brings out the best in them and they'll be the best versions of themselves. Is there much of that that you can apply in your business life? I think so. I think the, the parallels are, are huge. There's going to be doors that close in your face, even in my short experience, both in FinTech and in coffee. There are uh, conversations that you have that go round and round and, and are at meet at a dead end. But I think what you do learn is that those little moments and those tidbits will only prepare you well for the next conversation or the next journey. So don't let small setbacks hold you back from getting to where you want to go. And I love your resilience uh, and reference. Proven Gordon, who was one of the good guys, one of the few good guys uh, in the Zuma cabinet during the darkest days here in South Africa, uh, said that the one thing that kept him going was the incredible resilience of the South African people. And I guess we've had enough knocks in this country to learn our lessons and hopefully they're going to serve us well in future. Yeah, I think uh, resilience and character are, are traits that any good team member wants, which any leader wants in his team. I think you know, people who are, who are motivated but have good intent at the heart of what they do. They aren't trying to cut corners. They aren't trying to find an easier way to do something, but are honest and are have great integrity for what they do. So, you know, Mr. Gordon is, is well-respected in that capacity. You've been listening to another Biz News production. Be sure to catch all our podcasts by subscribing to Biz News Radio on iTunes, Spotify, Amazon, or by visiting biznews.com. I'm Alec Hogg. Until the next time, cheerio.